0: Can you guys believe that we're back to school already? I mean, I know the students who are here had an amazing time and I suspect many of them are shell-shocked that school is about to start. Uh, Here in Seminole County, it actually starts on Friday. I mean, my son did band camp all week last week. I know some of the drama programs have their auditions tonight. And, And here we are, school is about to start. And I know we've got a lot of students in the room. We've got a lot of parents of students, neighbors, aunts, uncles, people that are just sitting around students in the room. I know it affects all of us. In my family, back to school is a really big time of year. Part of that's because we've got five kids going back to school. Yeah, five kids. Our oldest is going to Seminole High School for the first time. High schooler. (laughs) Cannot believe it. And we've got a daughter in middle school, at millennium, two kids at Midway. uh, And then our son is going to start the three years program here at Northlands Preschool at Co-op. We are so delighted. Um, And we'll have one at home, Felix, our baby. He's about three months old. And I I don't want to miss the opportunity to say thank you. You could see the kids up here. They're... Um, wonderful wonderful kids they even let me take a picture of them which is a pretty big deal and uh, and Felix just turned three months old I don't want to miss the chance to say thank you because man six kids this child was a surprise to us and there were a lot of moments when we needed a lot of prayer and so many of you prayed for us and encouraged us he was 10 days late which were very long days for us and the number of times that y'all loved us, uh, many of you even brought meals to us. We've even got one in our freezer still. And so I just want to say thank you because you guys loved us through a, a, pretty, a pretty tricky time. And, and I'm so grateful. You. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, so back to school, I know, is a tricky time for a lot of people because it's, it's a season of newness, right? New classes, new friends, new everything. I remember when I went off to college and met, met all these new friends of my own, I found a new faith, and was invited by a friend to go to a new church. And I had decided to go along with him. And being a college student, I was a little bit late, maybe 15, 20 minutes or so. And so when we walked into this church in rural Virginia, the room was already packed. 300 people in every possible place that you could sit. And the only seats left were in the very front row. And in this room, there was no way to slink in. And I tried, you know, I was kind of walking funny, which made everybody notice me even more. And we took our seats and and service was going on. Preacher started preaching. And I really liked what he was saying, even though it was a little hard for me to hear because I was so far up front that he was basically next to me, almost a little bit behind me, about 10 feet away. And so I, I had to lean back to really hear what he was saying. But he was just talking about things that resonated with me, about grace and love and about how all of us need God because all of us are in places of brokenness and how it's easy for us to just think about, you know, God is who bad people need. But no, maybe if we look really hard, we'll see that it's all of us. And so he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do an exercise and I'm going to name some sins. And if you've ever committed them before, I want you to stand up. I was like, wow, that is a bold thing to do, pastor here. And uh, all right, he goes, no, I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I promise this is going to go okay. Watch, first thing, who here has ever assassinated a president? Well, nobody stood up, and we all kind of laughed a little bit. We looked around, we're like, okay, he's not hanging us out to dry. And he says, all right, who here has ever hijacked an airplane? Again, nobody, we're looking at each other. We're like, all right, we're in the clear on this. And I start thinking to myself, where is he going to go next? What's he, is he going to do another big crazy thing? Or is he going to dive right into, you know, envy or lying to your brother or sister or being mean to somebody? Something that all of us would connect with. So I'm sitting there like, all right, what's he going to say? And I hear him say, who here has ever held a grudge against an elementary school kid? I'm like, that is the single weirdest sin that you could possibly come up with in an exercise like that. What, you know, what are we supposed to do with it? But you know what? Dang it. Maybe I've done that before. You see, just the weekend before, I went to a a concert. I went to a punk rock show with a bunch of my friends. And we were dancing around. We were having a great time. But there was a problem. The problem was there were these kids, fifth graders probably. And they were everywhere that I went and they were under my feet and they were getting in my way. And you know, I began to develop some hard feelings towards these young people. You could say I was holding a grudge and I could not believe that he had just used that as an example. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, man, I'm in church. I can't lie. This is not a good place for lying. All right, so I stand up. And two things happen. The first is all of the air was sucked out of that room. And it was utterly silent. And I'm standing on the front, but I know nobody else is standing with me. And I'm a little bit nervous. And I'm kind of trying to look without looking. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on here? And the second is the pastor who, again, he's 10 feet. He's right there. When I stand up, his head whips around and his jaw drops and he freezes. He just freezes, and it's totally silent. And then he goes, uh, praise God for his redeeming power. (laughs) And I'm thinking, oh, no, something has gone terribly wrong. And I, I slowly sit down. And my friend who brought me leaned over and said, Nathan, you sold drugs to elementary school kids? I had not, but I misheard what he said and I stood up for the very wrongest of things. And there was a little girl sitting next to me and her dad picked her up and put her on his lap. And I spent the next 20 minutes learning the pattern of that floor, every inch of it, just thinking, oh, what have I done? And I got to tell you, I was so sure I could never go back to that church. Which was a bummer because I loved it so much. And so the next week I did not go back. I went to another church. I was like, I can find another church. And it didn't work. I didn't feel that same connection. I tried another one the week after. I was like, dang, this is not working for me. And so finally I, I thought about it a lot. And I thought to myself, you know, I was sitting on the front row. I bet you they don't really know what i look like all that well (laughs) and i bet you i could just kind of sit in the back and maybe i can get away with it so six weeks later gave it a lot of time here i sat in the back and no one said a thing no one said wait a minute you're that guy and in fact they were all friendly and they were all welcoming and it became my church home and for four years those people loved me They taught me. When I did a mission trip for the summer, they commissioned me. And when I started my own band, they sent their kids to come and see us play. And I was so glad that they had forgotten me until I realized they hadn't. No, they had decided to love me, even though I had, in their minds, done a very, (laughs) very terrible thing. They committed to loving me despite myself. And I thought, what is it that would make a people love like that? I hadn't experienced that before. Well, we're going to look today at Psalm 57. Psalm 57 talks about a love like that. And we're going to explore together what it means for us to pursue and to experience and to receive love like that in our own lives. You know, when I read through Psalm 57, I see it is a psalm that takes place in three acts. So we're gonna go through a third at a time. And the first act that I see at the beginning of the 57th Psalm is God's unfailing love. So let me read this to us. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. I will look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me. My God will send forth his unfailing love and faithfulness. My God will send forth his unfailing love and faithfulness. You know, I don't experience unfailing things very often. This last week in my house, we lost two light bulbs. We have one of those hundred year old houses in downtown Sanford. And so the wiring's a little dodgy. We've actually gone through like a dozen different light bulbs. And not just light bulbs, unfortunately. You guys remember that hurricane, right? We did mostly okay, but we lost the, the fencing on the south side. It, it turned a little sideways, and we had to get that fixed. And, and actually, the fencing on the north side of the backyard, it went all the way over. We had to replace all of that. Uh, and actually, the, the gate on the fence in the very backyard, and the, the fence in the front yard on the north side, it got crushed by a tree, and the gate on the fence. Actually, all of the fencing in our house has pretty much been destroyed in the last year. It's a a problem area for me. Um, But it's also our oven knob, our thermostat, our Wi-Fi router, thing after thing in my life has failed me. And I know for you guys, you experience stuff failing all the time, right? And we even experience people failing us, right? And here David is saying, God's unfailing love unfailing love, which means God's love has to be unlike any of the other stuff in our lives. And I think that it's unlike things in our lives in two ways, in two ways. First off, God's love is enduring in a very unique way. God's love has a different object permanence, a different build quality, where the things that we get, they might fail two days after we bring them home, two days after the warranty expires. God's love is enduring and can last through all the seasons of our life. But that's not the only way that David meant that God's love wasn't failing. And to see the second way, we should look at what's going on in David's life when he wrote Psalm 57. And it's the story of David and King Saul. Now, the David who wrote the psalm, you guys know this guy. It's David and Goliath. And you know that story, right? Israel, the nation is facing an enemy, the Philistines. And the Philistine army is bigger and badder and stronger, and so they're in trouble. And the Philistines say, No, it's cool, though. We'll just send out our champion, Goliath. And you know that guy. He's where we get the word Goliath from. He is bigger and meaner and badder than anybody else. And they say, Hey, just send us your champion, and, and we'll settle this way. Well, the, the nation of Israel, they don't want to fight that guy. He is huge. He is strong. And nobody will step forth and david is just a kid but he's so embarrassed that no one else has the faith to trust god and so david steps up to plate and he's a kid and all he has with him is a slingshot and some stones and you can actually see we have a picture of this happening it's a drawing and it's maybe it's not the most um, beautiful ever but i love the fact that the philistine army is all laughing they're laughing because how ridiculous is this and david launches that stone and kills goliath and the nation of israel is saved and a couple things happen the people around him the people of israel man they like that guy a lot you know david's prestige rises pretty quick and people start thinking he must have favor with god but the problem is david was just a kid israel had a king king saul and saul did not really love the idea of everyone else liking someone more than him He did not like the idea of people thinking that somebody else had God's favor more than him. So Saul started hunting David, chasing him with soldiers. And when David wrote Psalm 57, he is hiding from his king in a cave, terrified, looking for rescue. Rescue he can't give himself. And when he talks about God's unfailing love, he is actually confessing his own deficiency. David is is offering up the fact that I've got nothing for you, God, and I need everything. And he is so confident in God that he is willing to ask God for love. He's willing to say, God, I have nothing and you can offer me everything. And I'm confident that you will offer me everything. And you know what? You can know... That God's unfailing love, his willingness to offer everything, isn't just something for David. In fact, if we read Romans 5.8, you will see it says this, God showed his great love for us, for us, by sending Christ to die for us. You see this, God's love is revealed in Jesus, who is so enduring that not even death could extinguish him. But it doesn't stop there. The rest of that verse says this, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners. See, God's love was unfailing because even when we were in such a position of scarcity, position of brokenness, that he was in such a position of abundance, that he would walk in and meet with us and offer us something. And you know, we all get this. We've all been in that position of deficiency before, right? We've all been broken. We've all been hurt. We've all failed ourselves, failed others, failed God. We've wavered on him, but he does not waver on us. And when David says our God is unfailing, that's what he's reminding us about. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 tells us, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. You know when I read that I'm struck because what it does not say is how good we were. So look at what God did. It didn't say because you had the right friends, because you dressed the right way, because you said the right things, because you thought the right things, because God knew you'd eventually get your act together, look at what he was willing to do for you. No, he says we're dead, dead, and yet. He was willing to send jesus he was willing to love us his unfailing love is his willingness to pick us up when we are broken to love us even when he knows we're going to fail him and hey when i'm talking about love here i'm not talking about affection this isn't a sermon about god's affection this is about something different love in the true sense love in the biblical sense is action taken for the benefit of someone else you know, Bob Goff wrote a book called Love Does. Love does. C.S. Lewis said, Love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It's not a state of the feelings, but of the will. So when we talk about God and love, that's what we're talking about, whether it's Jesus on the cross, whether it's how God designed each and every one of us for purposes before he created the world. When it says in 1 John four sixteen that God is love, that's what it means, that God is love and so God is love his love is unfailing and what makes that so amazing to me isn't just that his love is unfailing but it's who he offers that love to. So let's look at act 2 of Psalm 57 and let's notice who his love is being addressed to because I gotta be honest our version of love is pretty poor. I'm surrounded by fierce lions who greedily devour human prey, whose teeth pierce like spears and arrows and whose tongues cut like swords. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. My enemies have set a trap for me. I am weary from distress. They have dug a deep pit in my path, but they themselves have fallen into it. They themselves have fallen into it. So... God is love. God is faithful to us. Faithful in his desire to work for our benefit. But who are we? You know, the first times that I read through the psalm, I read it from the position that David was in. I read it from being in the cave, feeling hurt and alone, because I've been there before. I've been oppressed. I've been persecuted. I've been betrayed. I've I've been wounded. I've been hurt. And I know you have too, right? And we feel that. We remember that. We know that. And it's so easy for us to feel what David was feeling because we've been there. I know that you can remember the time that you've been in the midst of lions. I know you can remember the time that people were trying to trip you up. I know some of you might be in the midst of that right now. We've all been there and we've all experienced that hurt and that fear that comes from that hurt. As I've meditated on Psalm 57, I've realized there's also a second side, a second perspective that is also very true, that is necessary for us to recognize so that we can fully understand that first perspective. And the second perspective we can understand when we think about King David's life, when he read Psalm 57 later on. And this is the story of David, Uriah, and Bathsheba. Now you gotta fast forward a few years for this. David's out of the cave. King Saul is gone. In fact, he's dead. And and David, instead of in the cave, David is now the king. King David. And things should be going pretty good for him. But there is a significant problem. And the problem is that David has become fixated on Bathsheba. He's besotted with her. He is just enamored with her and he enters into a relationship with her even though she is someone else's wife. And it's bad. And what makes things worse is that the only path forward that David can see for himself involves David reaching out to Uriah's commander, to Bathsheba's husband's commander, and saying, hey, take this soldier and put him in the most dangerous place of battle because David wants him dead so that he can take Uriah's wife for his own. And suddenly, Psalm 57 means something very different. In fact, it's the sort of prayer That Uriah or Bathsheba might have offered up and David has gone on the other side of the equation he has gone from being the victim of a problem to creating a problem and man when I think about this story I don't like David very much I mean it's hard to it's a terrible thing that he did but you know the truth is when I think about my own life Some of this feels like maybe my experience too. You know, all of us, we've been the victims. We've been in the midst of lions, but sometimes we've also been the lions. Sometimes we are the ones that are digging the traps for others. And I know this is true because Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have fallen, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's the human problem that we are the prey But also we are the predator and we got to figure out what to do with that because that's a big problem. Where God is unfailing on high, we are falling short and we are down here. Here's God and here's us and that is a big gap to bridge. And where God is love and working for our benefit, who are we and whose benefit are we working for? Well, I'm convinced that this problem is fundamentally rooted in the way we naturally love. And it's flawed. And I like to call it, give what you get love. And at first, you might hear that and say, give what you get love. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. At its ideal, maybe it would work. But there's a problem with give what you get love. And it's a problem that I have seen time and time again lead to significant failures, whether in businesses, whether in friendships, whether in marriages in all areas, that this erodes at who we are. And it's because we understand and practice love the wrong way. Let me explain how this works. Last night I played soccer. Soccer, I see at least one of the people I played soccer with sitting right over there. And so I played soccer last night, and it works the same way every single time. When the game starts, everyone is excited. Everyone is willing to give 100%, right? People are high-fiving. They're like, this is going to be awesome. And then the game starts, and pretty immediately, you discover that one of the people on the team are not quite doing so awesome. You know, they're in the wrong place. The ball is bouncing off of them. Nothing is working quite the right way. And so all of the people around them on the team just decide, I'm going to give them the ball a little bit less. Maybe we won't lose so badly then. But I got to tell you, that person, they notice. They notice. Maybe the, de- the deficiency is even having for, happening for a good reason. Maybe they're cramping up or they're just tired. They don't care. And they're like, nobody's giving me the ball anymore. So when they finally get the ball, they dribble a little bit more than they should. They take really poorly decided on shots because they just want to take the few opportunities they have. And everybody gets more frustrated. And the rest of the team starts playing worse because we all know when you're frustrated, you don't do anything in life well. And so suddenly, instead of just one person struggling, other people are struggling. And over the course of the game, the team gives each other less and less of the ball because they're more convinced that the other people are gonna mess it up until you get to the end of the game. And guess what happens at the end of these games so often? People just walk off the field. Somehow, in 90 minutes, you go from a bunch of people who are like, yes, I'm a team, we're together. This is gonna be awesome, all the hope in the world. And over 90 minutes, you end up to, I don't want anything more to do with you. This was a disaster. I'm done. In 90 minutes. And I see it almost every time I play soccer. But this isn't just what happens in soccer. That pattern of waiting for someone to give you something first and only being willing to return what you get is what deteriorates businesses and friendships. And marriages It's what leads to the dissolution of everything, everything. And we end up on this race from 100% to zero. We end up on a race to find ourselves in caves alone, crying out for help from God because there's no one left. We're by ourselves. And so there we are. God is love and he is unfailing. And us, the human condition, we... We are dry and empty wells. We've got nothing to offer. But here's my favorite part of this psalm, and it's my favorite part of everything. It's, you guys know, the answer's going to be Jesus. But what's the question? How does it work that we can go from that position of deficiency from 0% back up to 100%? How does God work that into being? And how can we find ourselves restored from that place of emptiness and brokenness? How can we be lifted up despite the oppressive weight of our failures and our sins. So let's look at Act 3 of Psalm 57. And Act 3 is love like Jesus. Let me read this to you, the end of this psalm. My heart is confident in you, O God. My heart is confident. No wonder I can sing your praises. Wake up, my heart, Wake up, O lyre and harp. I will wake the dawn with my song. I will thank you, Lord, among all the people. I will sing your praises among all the nations. For your unfailing love is as high as the clouds. Your faithfulness reaches to the heavens. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over the earth. For your unfailing love is as high as the heavens. Have you ever experienced a love as high as the heavens? Have you experienced love that lifts you at all? Have you even been lifted from a place of brokenness up before? You know, maybe you haven't experienced that sort of love, but I'm pretty sure you've experienced that sort of lift. I mean, just think back to the last time you flew in an airplane. You know, airplanes are crazy to me for a lot of reasons, Um, not the least of which is I'm not sure that we really understand how they work, and yet we get on them and trust them to fly us in the sky, which I suspect is part of the reason that some of you do not get on said airplanes. I, for a long time, had airplanes all wrong, all wrong. And apologies to pilots and physicists here, but I'm gonna explain the mystery of flight in just a minute. And I'm gonna tell you guys how planes fly. But I gotta tell you, for a while, I thought they worked how space shuttles work. You guys know how a space shuttle works, right? There's an enormous amount of thrust that goes down Which means that the space shuttle goes up to outer space and I thought that's what a plane did except for instead of going straight up I guess I thought that a plane knew the angle to go at and then if they were off you'd end up in outer space maybe that's a concern that I had Uh, or if they aim too low you'd just be a really expensive car with wings Neither of those was right. And you know, it's so obvious. The more I looked into it, um, if all you do, you can know it's wrong. All you need to do is look at a picture of a space shuttle and look at a picture of an airplane. I enlisted the help of my nine-year-old daughter, Arden. She drew the space shuttle. And my seven-year-old son, Augustine, drew the airplane. And um, they did a fantastic job. I've got the pictures right here. And uh, possibly the best thing here is that the airplane says Star Wars, like all airplanes should. (laughs) So they nailed it. And you notice with the shuttle, the shuttle weighs about 800,000 pounds. But what's around the shuttle? All of those boosters and rockets. In fact, 3.5 million pounds of fuel and boosters are needed to get the space shuttle out of space. And here's what's so crazy do you know how far of a journey that is? It's only 76 miles. That shuttle needs all of that fuel and those boosters to go 76 miles. I mean, that's like here to Tampa, right? And that airplane, I'm pretty sure it can fly from here to Tampa pretty easy. And if I look at it, I notice there are no boosters on that airplane. Somehow it does that journey right. But let's say an airplane did need boosters to go to Tampa. Here's what it would have to look like. All right, so who's gonna get on that airplane? None of us, right? (laughs) But let's say you wanted to go further than Tampa, because honestly, we're just gonna drive to Tampa, right? We're not very far. Let's say you wanted to go to LA. In order for a plane to use thrust and get to LA the way a space shuttle did, the rockets would need to look like that. Okay, so that's how much bigger the rockets and the fuel would have to be. Four times more supply to get you there than the space shuttle uses. What if you wanted to go visit my brother in Hawaii? It's beautiful, you should go there sometime. He's clearly the smartest brother because that's where he lives. And uh, you would need your boosters and your rockets and your fuel to be that big relative to 747. No person is going to get on that contraption. It is the most unsafe bomb in the world. And so you can just look and know that planes don't use thrust to fly. So then, how do they fly? How do they fly? Well, they use a principle called lift. And lift is absolutely crazy. Here's how it works, basically. Basically. When you take a wing and you take the air into the wing, it flows over and under, and the air moving over and the air moving under move at different speeds. And those different speeds create different pressure above the wing and below the wing. And do you know what happens? The air lifts the wing up, and because the wing is attached to the plane, as you are flying, the air is lifting the entire plane up. It's not force applied down. It's harnessing the power of the air to lift the plane up. And you know, I'm simplifying things just a tiny bit. All you physicists can talk to me in the four year afterwards. But when this happens, when the air moves fast enough, the plane takes off. I mean, think back to the last time that you flew in an airplane, right? Think back to it. You're seated in your very comfortable seat with lots of leg room and all of the snacks and drinks they've given you with the pillows and the blankets and they're singing songs of love and admiration to you on the airplane or something like that. And the plane starts to move forward and you start to lean back, you know, and it moves faster and faster, but you're staying on the ground and it speeds up and it speeds up and it speeds up until suddenly the plane starts to rise off the ground right and if you're a little kid or me you find that amazing when it happens you're like whoa we're in the air and it is an amazing thing and the reason that it happens is that you have hit a certain speed in which the airflow going over that wing creates more force upward because of lift than gravity is exerting force downwards so gravity is pushing you down and as you accelerate lift comes along and starts to lift you up faster and stronger, then the gravity can pull you down. It's a crazy thing, it happens with little planes, it happens with 747s. It'll happen with your roof in a hurricane. <laughs> Could happen with your whole house in a tornado. That's what lift does. You know, there's actually a plane the size of my house. It's called the Antonov AN-225. It's the biggest plane in the world, and the interior size is the size of my house. But it's made of very heavy metals, and it's full of heavy things, and so it weighs 1.2 million pounds. That's a lot of pounds. In fact, that's so many, I'm not sure we can truly appreciate how much weight that is if that was to be flying in the sky. So if this is helpful to you, it is about the same as if you looked out your window and saw, instead of this airplane, saw 150 elephants on a surfboard. Wouldn't you find that miraculous if you looked outside and you're like, oh, you know, it's the 215 out of Newark. Um, they got to move those elephants somehow. But that is the same weight that lift, that air is able to pull up into the sky because that plane is able to move fast enough forward. And you know, lift, lift transforms giant metal tubes into objects of flight just Like, love can transform a dead and dry soul into someone who is fully alive. You know, real love by definition creates lift as well. And the gravity of our sin is strong, whether it's our sin in our lives or the sin of someone else on our lives. And it's so strong, that gravity, that we cannot escape it on our own. We have no hope to do that on our own. But when real love washes over us in big or small ways, it always creates lift in our lives. Think back to the Good Samaritan story. I'm sure you've heard this story before. I love it. There's this guy on the side of a road, and he is beaten and broken and hurt. He's got nothing to offer. And in fact, people see this, so they pass him by and they don't help at all until a Samaritan shows up. Samaritan walks upon this guy and sees him and probably knows that this guy comes from the the part of the community that looks down on Samaritans and actually works against Samaritans and offers not just nothing, but offers, you know, hate and uh, uh, uncare. And so he has been slighted by this person probably his whole life. And he sees him and this guy's hurt. And He's got no no discernible offering at all, and yet he needs help. And what does the Samaritan do? The Samaritan reaches down and picks that man up and lifts him up and helps get him to an end and pays his way so that he can find restoration, so that he can find redemption, so that he can find life. And that is what love is fundamentally. Love is reaching down and lifting up. And it's not just what we see in the Good Samaritan story. I mean, think of that church that loved me despite my perceived sin, right? Think of the people who prayed for me and my family as we awaited the arrival of our baby, who offered encouraging words and, and meals when we were overwhelmed by the burden of life. The sort of love that creates lifts it can be nothing more than a kind word. It can be helping somebody at Chick-fil-A if there's a mess or they knock a drink over. It can even just be how some of my friends this morning went out and got red pants and blue shirts to encourage me this morning. You know, it can be something as small as that or love can be big. It can be seeing a friend in a place of crisis who has no place to be and offering them room in your home. It can be forgiving somebody who's betrayed you, who hurt you, who's wounded you and working for their benefit despite it. Real love, real love can take a million forms because there is a never-ending list of ways in which we can experience brokenness and in which we can need redemption and reconciliation in our lives. And how high does real love, God's love, lift us? Well, David wrote in the psalm, great is your love reaching to the heavens. You know, where human love is give what you get, the love of Jesus is a giving everything you've got proposition instead. Where human love starts at 100% and then just incrementally falls down to zero, Jesus sees people who are at rock bottom, and he fills them up, and he restores them all the way back, all the way up, back to God. The best we could do on our own without Jesus is not very good at all. We can never escape all the things in our life, the gravity of failure, of sin, of brokenness, of hurt, of problems. With human love, we could never reach the heights again, even if we might think we glimpse it here and there. But the love of Jesus elevates us in the moments when we are hurt and broken. The love of Jesus brings us lift. The love of Jesus brings us Life and the love of Jesus makes us fully alive again. And the deal is Jesus didn't just do this for your own benefit, though he did this for you. In 1 John 3, 14, it tells us this. The way we know we've been transferred from death to life is that we love our brothers and sisters, and anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. So we're here to live like Jesus but we're also here to love like Jesus, which means we're also here to lift like Jesus. And it's amazing with God, there's so much abundance that He lets us be His agents. He lets us participate in His work. He lets us love people with His love, which means we can love people first before they've loved us, it means we can love them with endurance even when they fail us. And it means we can love people not worried about what we can get from them or about giving away what we've got because we can know that God is actually our supply. And when we love like Jesus, when we love the people around us, you know what's going to happen, right? They're going to experience that love of God in their lives and it's going to pull them up in a way free and clear of the traps and the snares that are threatening them on the ground. So today we're going to celebrate our God of love and lift in three ways. Two right here in the service. In just a minute, we're going to take communion together. But before we do, we're going to sing a song, a song called Rise. It's a song part of our worship team has written, and we've only sung it here once or twice before. So I know that maybe not all of you know it yet, but it's a song written in the style of a psalm. It's a song about God's position, His goodness, And it's an opportunity for us to lift up our voices in praise, acknowledging him and his unfailing love. And so whether or not you know the song, I'd love for you to sing or at least speak the words with us. I mean, as David wrote in in this psalm, sing and make music, awake my soul, awaken the dawn. So we're gonna awaken our souls together as we sing. And because the song is called Rise, would you rise with me now you can use the first moments of the song to prepare your hearts. And then join me in singing these words with your hearts, and also, as you're able, sing them with your voice as well.